Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. As a mom, vegan of 20 years, and entrepreneur, I need a lot of energy. And I turn to Athletic Greens to help me out. Athletic Greens is part of the daily nutrition regimen for thousands of top performers, professional athletes, and health-conscious go-getters worldwide, including USA cycling and endurance athletes. So I knew I would trust them. It's developed from a complex blend of 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food-sourced ingredients. And it's a comprehensive all-in-one greens powder engineered to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet and support your body's nutritional needs across the four pillars of health, gut health, immune system, energy, and recovery. And these are all things that I'm super interested in. I put a scoop in my smoothie in the morning, and it feels amazing to know that I'm set up to feel my best and sustain my energy all day long. Try for yourself at athleticgreens.com slash lit yoga. That's athleticgreens.com slash lit yoga and get lit up. Welcome to Friday with Friends. Today I have Libby Hensley. Libby is a physical therapist as well, and she also specializes in hypermobility and focusing on the intersection of yoga and hypermobility from her own experience and her deep dive into the hypermobility spectrum disorders. We speak about this and much more today. Enjoy our discussion as two physical therapists who love yoga and want you to feel your best in your yoga practice. Welcome, Libby. I'm so happy to have you on today, and I'm really eager to talk about your experience uh, with EDS and hypermobility and your upcoming book. So thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So let's just start from the beginning. How did you become interested in yoga? How did you become interested in this work that you've been doing and now turning it into a book? Can you just give us a little bit about your background? Sure. So I got into yoga in college. 20 something years ago and thought it was cool. I was a gymnast, you know, as a kid and always very active and always very bendy. So when I found yoga in my twenties, I loved it because I was naturally, you know, good at it. That positive feedback that people who have a lot of range of motion get from yoga is nice. So I kept on and, you know, there were also of course, pieces of it that were addressing other needs that I had. Like I had pretty severe anxiety in my twenties and things like that. So there was a lot I was gaining out of yoga over the years, but unfortunately, one of the things that I gained from yoga was a lot of chronic injury. And it took me a long time to understand what was going on with that. Because whenever something would hurt in my body, I was just assuming I should do more yoga and stretch more. And so that was kind of my approach for many years. Now, later on, I became a yoga teacher in 2004 and uh, started teaching right away. I've been teaching ever since. 
And it wasn't until I found a different way of practicing asana that I learned in the Vini yoga lineage, which really changed things for me because I had come out of more of a power yoga, ashtanga type approach, which I loved. And uh, when I found a more slow paced, really intentional movement, you know, motor control focus of the asana, it changed everything. And I started coming out of my zone of injury. And now many years later, uh, yoga asana practice feels good and it doesn't hurt anymore. And so, you know, over that time, I also became a physical therapist in 2011. So that's 10 years ago, been practicing as a PT for 10 years. And at this point, I have a private practice in which I mostly treat injured yogis and yoga teachers. And so over these last, you know, handful of years, what I've seen is a pattern of the, my patients have all the same stuff that I had and um, not only structural issues that were similar, such as the most common complaints of the bindi yogi, which is rotator cuff, tendonitis kinds of issues, um, sacroiliac joint pain, uh, high hamstring tendinopathy, chronic tendinopathy. Those would be the three big ones. And they also, though, had a bunch of other things that were consistent with hypermobility spectrum disorders, uh, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And those would be things like chronic anxiety, depression, digestive disorders, a tendency towards autoimmunity, you know, a heightened kind of sympathetic nervous system activation, incredible muscle tension, all these different pieces that fill out a bigger picture of what's going on for hypermobility. Wow. So I just want to first start with, um, you said increased tension, which is very interesting because one would think with hypermobility, they need more tension. But I think what you're referring to is this resting sympathetic nervous system type of anxious tension of like gripping or holding versus stabilizing. Is, is that true? Exactly. It's so counterintuitive it's sort of like envision the very bendy yogi in a split while she complains about how tight she is. That's sort of the image that I've actually seen that very thing. And it's not that she, you know, is crazy. She actually feels tight because there's a sense of muscle tension that is, we could call it neurological tension. We could call it, yes, a direct result of that heightened sympathetic tone, which has a lot of sources in this person. One of those sources is more of a neuromuscular response to instability, right? When we have a lot of extra wobble in our joints and in our passive structures. So if you think about the sort of the, the whole movement system as their passive structures, tendons, ligaments, fascia, joint capsules, and then their active structures, muscles, right? The the passive structures are really designed to hold tension and to maintain integrity through tension. That's, that's something we call tensegrity. When they kind of aren't up to the task because they have some impairments in collagen structure and function or fibroblast behavior, um, it's not well understood quite yet. But when they have that impaired ability to, to maintain tension in the system and create integrity, then our active structures have to really bump up their game and tighten down and hold this chronic tension to try to keep things together. So that's a piece of it. 
Yeah. So for anybody listening who might have gotten lost in the technical terms, which were amazing, some something to think about is like if you were, uh, you know, just like a rubber band, you know, rubber band is going to have that tensegrity, that tension that you're talking about that would give stability if it was like around a, a tennis ball or something. So that's kind of like your labrum around the ball and socket joint of the hip and shoulder. But if that gets stretched out, it's not like your ball and socket joint is like subluxing or, or moving around, but there is a sense of instability there because you don't have those passive restraints uh, that Libby was referring to, like the capsule and like the ligaments and the, the, the surrounding fascia of the joint to stabilize so that ball can move really well and then project that movement out into the shaft of the femur, the leg, the thigh bone. And so instead, when there's that sense of inner instability because those passive restraints aren't working, you are in a heightened state of like, whoa, I'm sure. And like you said, there's differences that um, have been acknowledged in the collagen makeup for people with hypermobility. But I think your nervous system is responding to that, like a little bit of nervousness of instability. So whatever is able to is gripping to hold on. And those, you know, so we're actually working against what is biologically there, biomechanically there to support us. And and this is really brings up yoga in general, what I've always um, been frustrated with, which is especially true for hypermobile people, because you've just, all of you have been applauded and like emulated and adored. So you're, like you said, it felt really good. Like I was be able to do it, but I always, those are the people that I worry about the most. I always tell my teacher trainees, those are the people you need to worry about the most because they're not getting any of the feedback that they need. But I would, I, I'm curious about your thoughts about the regular person who isn't hypermobile, who is pushing into those passive restraints, like the anjaneyasana, the low lunge where you're really sinking. Do you think that it's possible that you can almost create that same responsiveness that a hypermobile person would have? Yes, I do to some degree. Now, um, I think someone who's not genetically hypermobile, let's say hypermobile as a result of that laxity or that floppiness, I call it a floppiness of the passive structures. If they're pushing, pushing, pushing to the point where their system doesn't feel safe in those ranges, or they're stimulating more of a a response in the nervous system that says, I need to protect, I need to guard, we're about to fall off the cliff here, then yes, I think they'll see that neurological tension as a response to their overzealous pursuit of mobility and stretching, just the same way that a hypermobile nervous system would respond like that. But one of the things we know about hypermobile nervous systems is that they're very responsive. They're a little extra sensitive and sort of um, poised to sense threat more quickly. And that's part of that kind of nervousness that you described. I really liked how you described that as an inner nervousness or an inner sense of instability. And I really want to spend a minute on that because I'm a really big proponent of more of an anti-fragile mindset. I don't really like language that is fear-based and I don't want to promote this idea that just because you have hypermobility, your sacrum is going to fall out. <laughs> you know, we, we kind of use these, these words to describe that sense of instability that are pretty extreme. Like my sacrum's out. That's just one that I kind of, it's one of my favorites. You know, the sacrum doesn't come out. If, if your sacrum's out, you're not walking on it. You know, it's an incredibly- You've had a ski uh, injury <laughs> or <right>. something. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You know, it's bearing the weight of your axial skeleton. Like it's solid 
but it also can be irritated when there's that extra little wobble or extra shear strain and an extra sense of tension in response to that. So mm, I like that. So the other question I was going to ask for everybody who's less familiar, can you give us the like kind of the hallmark signs or definition of hypermobility and how early is this detected in people? Like growing up, are these the people that were floppy little, you know, didn't have, you know, from a PT standpoint, had low tone and were really doing the W sit and, and all these type of moves? Is it detected early or at, well, what are some other ways it's detected? Yeah, so it can be detected early. Now, naturally, younger people are going to be more rubber bandish. They're going to be a little bit more bendy and flexible, and that will change over time. But typically, if I'm doing an assessment with an adult, especially if they're older, 50s, 60s, 70s, they won't have the same mobility now that they did in their 20s. And so the questioning is about when you were younger, could you do all these party tricks? Were you the kid who was hanging out in a split hanging out in the W sit easily. So yes, that's an element of it. For example, I have a four-year-old daughter who had hypotonia, at least that's kind of what they called it when she was an infant. She's not behind in motor development, but she's floppy, you know? And, and I think that's what's going on. I have a diagnosis of hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. I mean, I can totally see it in her and we'll be fine, but that's what it looks like. So But when you're observing, say, your yoga students in a class, it's really hard to know what you're seeing. And especially for yogis, we're so used to seeing hypermobility that it looks normal to us. Okay, so when when you look out at your class and you see that person who probably is exhibiting normal human movement, normal human range of motion, you're thinking, wow, that person's so tight, you know, because everyone else is you know, maybe exhibiting some excessive mobility and they just look so normal to you. But the thing I wanna also say is hypermobility is really just a descriptor. And a lot of things can lead one to have more than normal range of motion in their joints. That's what hypermobility means. There are normal ranges of motion for each joint. And when someone has more than that, they're hypermobile there. They might be hypermobile in one joint or a few or more globally. That's just a descriptor because we know that the shape of our bones, the way they hook together, that can lead to some excessive range of motion. Maybe it's those passive structures and the collagen makeup of those. That's more of a genetic, as a genetic root there or source. But hypermobility doesn't have to be a problem. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. So be careful about alarming all your yoga students about, ah, you're hypermobile, you know, when you see them move a lot, because it might not be a problem. But when it becomes a problem, we call it a hypermobility syndrome or, you know, a hypermobility disorder. And then we can label those things. There are a couple of diagnoses that we can talk about there. But that's when it's symptomatic. So these people generally are going to have joint dislocations or subluxations or joint pain, myofascial pain. Those are the most common structural issues. But again, like I mentioned before, they're also likely to manifest things like digestive disorders, mental health challenges, immune system challenges, like mast cell activation problems and things along those lines. And that's where we get into this bigger syndrome. Wow. From an evolutionary standpoint, I'm wondering how, I mean, there's obviously so many you know, cellular mutations and variations that do happen. But I'm curious how this, um, this hypermobility syndrome 
like EDS and, and others originated. There's now like a physiological base that goes outside of the musculoskeletal system, like you said, into the nervous and digestive systems. Can you talk a little bit about how you got that diagnosis? What are the, like, do they just give, give you a questionnaire or is there some kind of in GI thing? Like, how do they actually give you the diagnosis of hypermobility syndrome or, or more specifically EDS? And I'm not familiar with any of the other ones, but that, that one I'm, I'm familiar with. Yeah, so we can talk about those in particular. There are other connective tissue disorders that have hypermobility as a feature. For example, Marfan syndrome would be one of those. And then there are some others, and those are less common. And then when we get into the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes, there are 13 or 14 identified subtypes of that. And most of those are very rare. But there's one that is not rare at all, and that is the hypermobile, hypermobile type. And that has a clinical diagnosis at this point. So there's like a list of diagnostic criteria that one has to meet in order to get that diagnosis. And it's more than just being hypermobile in a few joints. It's a whole, you know, you got to check off a number of those boxes. And at this point, the hypermobile type of EDS, they haven't identified a molecular marker for it. So there isn't a blood test you can take to confirm, yes, you have hypermobile EDS. All the other subtypes of Ehlers-Danlos syndromes have that molecular marker identified, so you can confirm it via a blood test. The hypermobile type, even though it's the most common, I would say is kind of the less, the least well understood from that perspective. There are a couple big research projects underway right now to identify a genetic marker. And so I'm really hopeful that really soon there'll be at least some candidate genes published and um, hopefully have some better diagnostics around that because it can be really hard for people to get a diagnosis. And so, so yeah, what I are can, some of like, what are some of those check boxes that if, if somebody was curious and they're like, well, I have some, I mean, obviously everybody go, you know, to a professional and check it out, but I, what, what are some of the check boxes? Yeah. So a geneticist would be the person to see if, if people were curious about that. But some of the check marks are the Biden scale. So you, there's a, the Biden scale is the most commonly used quick assessment of global hypermobility. It has its limitations for sure, but it's a nine point scale that looks at five movements in the body, elbow extension, knee extension, um, your pinky finger extension, your thumb kind of touching your forearm stuff, and then the forward fold and um, how far you can put your hands on the floor. So that would be the quick assessment. So you have to score a four or better on that. And for a lot of bendy people, I mean, I think I scored an eight or a nine out of nine, even still in my forties. So, but I've also worked with people who have clearly global hypermobility who score really low on that. So it definitely has its limitations. But in addition to that, there'll be things like dental history. So a lot of people have dental crowding and a high palate. You know, like when I was a kid, I had eight teeth pulled because I had no room in my mouth for all these teeth. So that's very common. Hernia, uh, abdominal hernia or umbilical hernia is one of them. Pelvic organ prolapse is another. Pesogenic papules on the heel, which is something I'd never heard of until a couple of years ago. It's basically the herniation of the fat pads on your heel, on your calcaneus, when you stand on the foot. Um, the fat pad herniates through the superficial fascia and creates these little bumps on the side. So that's like really floppy if you're, if that's dripping down <laughs> through the fascia. Oh my goodness. Yes. So mitral valve prolapse is another thing. 
not as common, but it's on the list. It's like a part A and part B of the diagnostic criteria. And you have to check a certain number of boxes in each of those. And then the other one would be dislocations, especially non-traumatic, right? Your just shoulder just pops out, not normal, things like that. And chronic pain. So musculoskeletal pain in more than one joint for say more than three months, something like that. But for most people with a symptomatic hypermobility, that's really easy to check. And how about the um, irritable bowel? Is that also, or is that, that I've heard of that. So mm-hmm. but that's, that's not true. It's not part of the official clinical diagnosis of the criteria, but it's very common. Same with mast cell activation disorders, that um, itchiness, people breaking out in hives, having histamine intolerance and histamine issues. That's really common. Again, you don't see it on the diagnostic criteria list for hypermobile EDS. So tell us some of the suggestions for people who might not be in this criteria, but do recognize that they have these hypermobile traits and might might have a syndrome. Um, what are what are some suggestions, especially if they love movement, love yoga, love running? What what are things that they can do to improve? And I'm sure you address this in your book, but you can give us a little highlight. Yeah, definitely. And one thing I'll say is when someone has a hypermobility syndrome, they have symptoms associated with this, but they don't meet the criteria for EDS they will be given a diagnosis called hypermobility spectrum disorder. And unfortunately, a lot of people think that's a lesser diagnosis. And I just want to say it's not. People with HSD or hypermobility spectrum disorder can have symptoms that are just as severe, if not more so than someone who has EDS. They're just different diagnoses. So I want to address that. And a lot of medical practitioners, unfortunately, don't understand these conditions really at all. And so it can be really tough for people seeking some help around this stuff. But as far as people wanting to move, movement, I would say, is the most important thing for someone with hypermobility. The details are what really matter. And unfortunately, again, I've talked with a lot of people who say, I got a diagnosis. My doctor says I can't do yoga anymore because stretching is bad for me. Well, that's just not true. There's just so much more to that story. So there are a lot of ways to stretch, right? We can do dynamic or or static. We can do active or passive. We could do resisted stretching, right? There's so many ways to move the body. Activity is really important, but what's going to be this person's best friend from now on forever is strength training. However you get it, whether you get it in asana practice, or you get it at the gym, lifting some weights or swimming, Providing resistance to the body and building up stability is the key. Training your active structures, your muscles to hold things together better, to pick up the slack from your floppy passive structures that just aren't going to be able to do their job optimally. And they'll always need help. Your muscles will always need help to be stronger. And when they get stronger, here's what's also counterintuitive. When those muscles get stronger, they actually get to chill a little bit and they don't have to go into that dysfunctional chronic tension because they have a better functional strength that they can rely on. Hmm. Now, in in terms of strength training, is there any kind in particular that is better or is it like whatever, like in terms of weight bearing, own weight resistance, or do you need to add some extra load to that in the form of weights? Yeah. It's going to be person specific. So if someone has a lot of chronic subluxation or they dislocate easily, we're going to have to do a lot more joint protection in an approach to 
to strength training. So progressive loading is the key, starting where someone is and building slowly over time. So getting some help, whether it be from a personal trainer or a PT or someone who really understands that concept of kind of graded exposure, progressive loading and monitoring your response. So the other thing is a lot of folks with hypermobility syndromes sort of have poor exercise tolerance. And we have to really train that um, exercise response over time. We can get better at it, but you might find two days after exercise, wow, your muscle soreness is extreme, like not normal muscle soreness, or you get so fatigued the next day, you know, you're laid out for the day. So those things need to be monitored as well. But I'm a really big fan of water and moving in the water because it gives you resistance in all directions. I'm a really big fan of just body weight uh, training, such as what we could do in asana practice. And I also am a big fan of, of weight training, dumbbells, barbells, kettlebells. But in that realm, I'd certainly recommend guidance and, and moving with um, kind of strict, slow movements versus momentum. In general, momentum is not your friend if you're bendy because momentum is easy. It's easy to fling yourself around. That's how you get things done. That's a good compensation strategy. Actually, it's very functional, but um, working on that motor control is really important. Hmm. So um, what is your thought on working into that in range of motion? Or do you prefer staying in that kind of, you know, 70% range of optimal move range of motion and strengthening there? Mm -hmm. I prefer staying in that 70% range and strengthening there first. Now, there's so much debate about this. I think it's kind of an interesting question. What's interesting to me about it is I want to ask, why do you think you need to go to that end range? What's Amen. Amen. Like, exactly. Are we going to? Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. No, if someone literally is a circus performer and this is their vocation, absolutely. It is functional to train those ranges. And there are people who do that. They're called circus performers. I mean, there's amazing <laughs> yeah. stuff happening, right? With those people and they know what they're doing and they have incredible motor control all the way to end range for the normal of us, you know, people who don't train for the circus, it's very difficult even to establish good motor control in the mid range, which is where life happens. So for using asana to train for life, we don't need to go to end ranges. I love that. And that, I so agree. And I think that's, I, that's what I always say. I'm like, well, why? Unless you're, again, a circus performer or getting paid a million dollars to do a split and yoga journal, which <laughs> exactly. you're not going to get because that won't happen. Like there's no reason to. And, but I think it's so confusing for people. They look on Instagram and there's personal trainers, some other PTs, and then some fitness people talking about these in-range training and load. And I'm, and I, I'm always like, why? You're, you're putting your body... Yeah, for uh, for some people, they'll be able to do that and they'll be able to do it well. But the majority of us, are, that is just putting yourself in a position that isn't real life and is more in, potentially injurious with, you know, it's always like cost benefit. The cost is really great at that place. And the benefit is like, well, if you're not going to use it in real life, let's why why put yourself there? <laughs> Exactly. I always say when it comes to mobility, there's a point of diminishing returns. You don't get a better life by being able to move in these excessive ranges. It doesn't help you put your shoes on or get into your car and, you know, functional human movement. So, so that's my biggest question. When we look at it from a yoga perspective, the question is why, and the backdrop is the way we have 
what would I say, aestheticized asana is we've made it about aesthetics and we've lost track of what it's for in terms of the yogic system's interest. And that's fun. Contortionism is fun. Have fun in your body. That's great. But it's not yoga, actually. So really, it's like, do we ask this question from a yogic perspective, or are we asking that question from kind of just a movement, fun, strengthening, fitness perspective? And those are two different perspectives that have gotten conflated in modern yoga culture for better and for worse, right? But that's just the way it is. And so, um, yes, motor control throughout your range is a good thing, but let's just start mid range because most of us don't even have it there. Yeah. I'm always shocked and I'm sure you see it too. Like just getting people into, you know, quadruped or plank and just doing one move of perturbation with an arm or leg and they can barely handle that. And it's like, okay, that's not a lot, right? I mean, it is because gravity is all the way against you, but that's, we're not doing any big ranges of motion. So from there, you should probably not, not do a lot until you get that well organized. So you also talk about the kosha model. Can you speak a little bit about that? Because I'm not familiar with it, I don't believe. Sure. So the kosha model is a model that I really love and have kind of clung to throughout my yoga studies. And it's something that I mostly learned about in the context of my training in the Vini Yoga lineage at Desikachar's place, the Krishnamacharya Yoga Mandaram, where I spent some time gosh, about 13 years ago now. But um, anyway, since then, it's kind of been a real theme in my own perspective on yoga. And it's sometimes called the Panchamaya model. And it was developed by the Samkhya philosophers long, long time ago. And it appeared in the uh, Taitriya Upanishad, I believe, long time ago. And basically what it is, is just a model to try to describe human experience and the changing reality of human experience. And, And they came up with these five aspects. So there's the structure or anamaya kosha, which talks about your parts. And then there's the, we could say physiology or the vital body, which is the pranamaya kosha. And that again is like, how do the parts work? How are they animated, right? If in anamaya, we talk about the the structural integrity, say of your digestive tract. Well, in pranamaya, we want to ask how well does it work? Okay. And then there's monomaya, which is like your intellect. And that's sort of about how you take in sensory information, how you make sense of it, how you memorize and learn, a lot about learning and memory. And that's uh, monomaya. So, and then I'll go through the other two. The fourth one would be vignana maya, which is, we could think of as like special intelligence. It sometimes gets discussed as personality. So habits of thought and behavior and belief systems, sort of that realm. And then the most subtle would be Anandamaya, which we could think of as the emotional realm or the heart, kind of heart-mind part that is very relational, that has to do with your highest self and your emotional kind of experience. It's associated with bliss and it's associated with connection. And it's sort of like that jumping off point towards uh, the spirit realm or something like that. You know, if you think about the cosmology of all this. So ideally, the five aspects are considered to be things that are characterized by change. So when you think about that yogic dualism of Purusha and Prakriti, Prakriti being the stuff that changes, these five aspects are all considered to be made of Prakriti. Okay, they're changing all the time. And with our yoga practice, we have an opportunity to influence 
their direction of change. We have, we can influence the structure by our wise practice of asana. We can influence our physiology, mostly through influencing our nervous system through a wise practice of asana and pranayama and things like that. We can influence the function of our intellect through uh, chanting, mantra, focus, concentration, those types of practices, uh, limiting sensory input, right? Into helping ourselves integrate that. We can influence our personality by self-reflective practices and meditation and witnessing our reactionary parts. We can um, influence the direction of change in our heart mind by, you know, choosing who we hang out with and things like that and following joy and all those things that are more heart related. And the idea is that we have that opportunity through yoga practice. And if you think about the koshas as a lens to look at yoga practice through, it's like, wow, this is so much more interesting than my splits or my handstand. This is actually about my life, you know? So that's always been a good reminder for me to bring me back to, okay, what's this about? Like that question of why, right? Why are we practicing? Ideally, it's so that in all of these areas of life, we feel better. We, you know, behave better according to our values, right? Less reaction, um, more integrity, uh, right? We feel like we belong. We feel connected. We feel integrated in our body. We feel calm and regulated in our nervous system. We have focus, things like that. That's the potential of yoga practice. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. To catch that Purusha, you know, the Purusha we could think of as like that, that which never changes. And the idea is that it is living through these changing aspects, basically. Well, I am familiar with Koshas. I was actually thinking this is like a Dr. Kosha like method. <laughs> uh, and then all of a sudden you started talking kosha. I was like, oh yeah, okay, yoga koshas. Okay, got it. But I love that was that was one of the uh, most succinct and beautiful des- descriptions of it. And I've studied it a lot. So thank you very much. Finally, let's talk about your big endeavor here. You wrote a book. I don't know if you can reveal what it's called, but definitely tell us what it's about, what it entails, how we can find out more and pre-order it and all those kind of great things. Sure. So yeah, I'm in the middle of a book writing process, um, just completing my first draft. So the working title of the book, I'll tell you, is called Yoga for Bendy People. I love it. That might change. Who knows? But that's what it's called for now. And basically, it's helping people to understand the intersection between yoga and hypermobility. Right. So I go into um, some background on what these hypermobility syndromes are that I've described here with you and what's going on with the passive structure. So I get into the connective tissue nitty gritty a bit. And um, I also ask questions about what is yoga and what is asana for? Because one of my frustrations with the way that hypermobility is often discussed in the yoga world is it's kind of discussed from, okay, well, let's think about ways that bendy people can just practice yoga in the same way with less risk of injury. How can we help bendy people not get injured in yoga? Instead of asking, hang on a second, why are we even practicing? And how can we design a practice that actually supports this person that doesn't just not injure them, but that actually makes their life better. And so that's what I'm trying to do in the book. And I'm actually using the kosha model as the lens for that piece of the book to look at, okay, what are some general principles for supporting the bendy structure in asana practice? What are some principles for, you know, addressing the physiological 
tendencies in the hypermobile person? How about what's going on with the sensory processing of, of that person and some personality traits that might arise from that, right? And what does it mean to live with a chronic condition that is not well understood and that's invisible even to the medical community, right? How does that impact the heart and all those things? So I'm just addressing it from all those angles. Oh, that sounds amazing. And I love what you said. I, I, I really think um, as PTs, we know this, but, you know, diagnoses are helpful, but they can also be harmful because if you turn it into this thing that you're less than or you're, you feel fragile or you're limited by your diagnosis, that I'm sure we both have dozens, if not hundreds of people who are like, I have a disc injury and I can't do this. And it's like, okay, that's just a diagnosis and let's actually work so that you can continue doing what you want to and build the strength and endurance you need to protect that area that has, you know, had some inflicted uh, extra, you know, pressure or whatever it might be. And so I think that's, I really resonate with that. And I want everybody to really hear that, that don't, whether it's hypermobility disorder syndrome or some other diagnosis, it is just information and, but it is not something to limit you or to be afraid of. You know, there's, there's help out there and, and to feel empowered. So I love that you're doing it through that lens too, to really show how it can be empowering in all those different um, realms of the koshas. Yes, that's huge. I have a chapter that's all about diagnosis. Why or why not? Why would you want one? Why would you not? And I tell a story about my journey towards diagnosis and how it set me free, like hugely. And that it's a, you know, it's all person specific, but this isn't a diagnosis that has limited me. It's been so the opposite. I understand now how to manage my life so that I can thrive and everything makes sense. My whole life makes sense now, right? When I look back on it, I'm not left just still wondering, is this normal? Is this, why doesn't anyone understand this? Right. You know, and I finally met with the geneticist and he like absolutely knew what I was talking about and he knew what to name it. I was like, oh, it was so validating, right? I felt seen. I felt understood. It was a big hit for Ananda Maya, rather, the heart mind part that's like, I want to make sense, you know, I want my experience to make sense. So it's an, a really interesting place, but you're exactly right. That diagnosis does not lead, need to lead to I can't or I'm limited or woe is me, right? It's all about mindset. And the reality is that hypermobile people have superpowers. You know, it's not just a liability. This is a huge strength. They tend to be much more sensitive and, you know, kind of um, have some superpowers around empathy and um, intellect even. and gosh, all kinds of things that are to be celebrated and cultivated. That's wonderful. Well, this was such a joy talking to you, especially as a PT and a yoga teacher and now an um, upcoming author. So your book is slated to be released in the spring. Where can people find out more information about you, website, social media, et cetera? We also have this in the show notes, of course. Okay, great. So the best way to keep up with me and to keep up with book updates um, is through my Instagram site, which is Libby Hinesley PT. So you can follow me on Instagram. I also have a website that is libbyhinesley.com. It's pretty easy to find. And then I have another website with some of my trainings called anatomybites.com. And that's just, an, I do a lot of anatomy education for yoga teachers through that. There's a whole membership program and some fun stuff happening there. 
Amazing. Sisters from another mister. Here we go. (laughs) Well, it was such a joy to talk to you, Libby. Thank you for your time and congratulations on this journey and empowering others with all your information and practice. And I just really appreciate and honor your time here. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And for everybody listening, as always, I'm pulling for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.